they chose this title specifically to uh, to um, exclude the Jews' gift to the world, because we know that Jews are very gifted, and uh, you know they they have gifted the world with Google and uh, the polio vaccine, pacemaker, uh, theory of relativity, a lot of great things. But not, you know, even though that's great, it can make you feel proud, but the point of this course is Judaism's gift to the world. The Jewish faith, what it has you know, gifted the world. And of course, the main, the main focus is, okay, you, know, you can look at all these things in the past, saying, oh wow, what a great past, but what is the message today? And of course, what is the message for the future? You know, what is the, because we know that the Torah is, you know, the truth. And therefore, something that's true is supposed to be something timeless. So what is the timeless gift that Judaism, you can start from the past, look at what Judaism contributed, and then look at what the message still is today and what is the message for the future. So, let's begin with an exercise. And I, I, I want to say one thing. Yeah. I like that message a lot. And, and all through Chabad, we always say, our job is to be a model for other, other people, not just Jews. Mm -hmm. And I would like to, one of the themes of the class to be, how we can do a better job, and I'm going to use the word selling, not telling, other people the good things that we do, or the good things that we have in the Torah. <coughs> so I think we do a horrible job at selling. We, we want to tell other people, but we don't want to sell other people, I think, or Jews are not necessarily the best, in my opinion, at advocating and inspiring other people to follow or accept some of the wonderful things we have. And that's an issue to me that if, we're, if we have these wonderful things, and I believe a lot of the things that you're going to talk about here, mm -hmm. social responsibility, rights, all, all that justice, all that stuff is good, I, I just don't think we do a terrific job selling it. So the, the question really is, what are we trying to sell? Well, that's, if we're trying to sell the Torah, of... people aren't going to buy it. Well, we... It were, that's, People that are not Jewish are not I think, into Right. Well, it's I'm not the, Jewish. Sorry? I'm not Jewish. Okay, you're, you're an outlier. <laughs> well, it's, it's... You're an outlier. I think, I think it's, it's... The question is, before saying what the Jews are trying to sell, is the real question. That, and that's why the, the name is key. Judaism. And, and sometimes you have to make a distinction between the Jews and Judaism. Because a lot of times, the Jews, unfortunately, kind of strayed from Judaism's gifts or, you know. So okay, that's, that's a, that. yeah, okay. So that's one thing you, have to, you want to put in perspective. And I think, you know, in, in I think lesson five, we're going to talk about really, or four, what is really, you know, the, the seven Noahide laws. That's really what we're really trying to sell, so to speak. Now, there is a concept, you know, that's the, what they have to do you know, the non-Jews, but the, the, from the, then you have, you go back and you look at the whole Torah, then we're going to see throughout the course that there are values other than the seven Noahide laws, then also that people have, 
adopted and uh, we can still improve in that regard. I think in general, when you look at, you know, if you, so to speak, you look at a marketing, uh, you know, statistics, the reason a lot of people didn't buy the, what we were selling is not so much because, you know, we didn't sell it right. I think it's, we had a lot of enemies and uh, for, I don't, I don't think, meaning we're going back to anti-Semitism, which is primarily irrational. So therefore, I think it's not so much on the Jews. In other words, I, I, I spoke to a uh, very big activist of uh, anti-Semitism, and he told me, education is for the people in the middle. The people that hate you, no matter what, you're not, you can't educate them. There's no, there's no middle ground. There's no, nothing you can you know, talk to. The education part is the people in the middle that they're uncertain, they have a lot of doubts, but they're not yet you know, sold on their lives. Those are the people you want to educate. So that, I think this is very important. Meaning, yes, if you look around the world, I mean, it looks terrible. And, uh, but I think it's, it's not so much because of the, the Jews. Um, I, I'll tell you a story, actually, I remember very, very clearly. I was doing um, on Sukkot, so we go around and get Jews to, to and, and uh, men, men and women, yeah, to, to shake the lulav and everything. And I, you know, so we, we were in Manhattan, so you know, asking everybody, are you Jewish? And then offering, and I say to this guy, you know, excuse me, are you Jewish? He says, no, and I'm happy I'm not. I was like, okay, you know, what, uh, <laughs> what happened? He's like, oh, so I had a. Uh, my boss was Jewish and he, you know, he wasn't very honest, blah, blah, blah. So it was funny to me that someone can, I mean, it happens, we're human, that's what we do, we generalize, we, one person that we know does something wrong, which might have nothing to do with Jews and Judaism, sure. and yet, so I think a lot of it, a lot of that animosity that we have towards us, a lot of that is, is part of that and there's definitely an agenda to continue that meaning to you know make that so even how, more. We, how will we be successful modeling for the world so I, I definitely suggest you to, to read um, not in God's name by Jonathan Sachs amazing amazing uh, book it's not just on anti-semitism it's officially on religious violence and it just gives you a really uh, like whole, wholesome picture on the whole, on the whole every, you know, trouble between the Abrahamic faiths. And uh, other than that, I think educating yourself and whoever you, you get in touch with, just, I, I already spoke to, after I read that book, I spoke to a lot of people already, just telling them what I, what I you know, learned. I think that's the people that are against you, like from the start, you can't educate those, unfortunately. So, yeah. But well, we'll come back to it. No, yes. laws. Those are not, yeah. easy, not an easy sell either. So we'll yes, come back yes, to I definitely I agree. agree. Okay. So now let's begin with the exercise because it's going to give us an idea of one of the big uh, goals of this, of this course is to show you that the the contribution from Judaism was not only with regards to religious ideals 
I mean, yeah, Judaism is the the religion that Christianity and Islam was, you know, an, an offshoot, offspring of, so to speak. But go, you know, a lot because a lot of people are gonna say, okay, you know, what if I don't really care about religious contribution? So what is in in it for me? And so the point, the goal of this course is to show you, and this is the point of this exercise, is to show you that Judaism contributed not only to religious values, but also to the values, universal values that, you know, of Western civilization. Okay. So let's begin. If you had the ability to create a perfect society, what would be the values and attitudes about life that you would instill in this society? So I would say write three, three to five things that you think would be the most important thing to create a good society. And if you don't mind sharing it with me. Currently. Yeah, no, you know. 2020. Yeah, <laughs> if you want to have a good society. Anybody wants to share some values? Uh, I'm not putting my mouth. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say that we're more similar than different. Treat others how you would treat yourself. That's good. I, I wrote down peace, you know, peaceful relations, charity and care and compassion for the less fortunate, social consciousness and responsibility. Kindness, equality. Those yep. would be some of the ones I would put down. Those are the first ones I put. Yep. Uh, I might have misunderstood the question, but I said government hierarchy, flowing water, refuge system, food production, and laws. I put value, human life, order, aka law, and education. Mm-hmm. Yep, all very, very important things. So, all these values that you know we share are kind of a given. You know, we we can't even really imagine, you know, our day-to-day life without these ideals being kind of a part of life. But the truth is that we will see that a lot of these ideals and a lot of these values were not part of ancient civilizations, and in some ways, not not such ancient civilizations and until the Jewish faith had a great impact on them and this is not just you know me saying at a rabbi but we can see in text number one by the second president of the United States John Adams I know I, I want to just clarify that so this is after the Torah was given or before the Torah was given when are you saying that this contribution from Judaism starts after after, after the Torah yeah. is given, and that's that's why so it's about two thousand three thousand three hundred and thirty-two years ago. Oh, say that again. Three thousand three hundred and thirty-two years ago. That's why text one is key because 
He yes. talks specifically about after the Jews became, became a nation at Mount Sinai. Because if you think about it, we were a family, just a family, a big, big family, big family. that became a nation. That's, that's the, what happened at Mount Sinai. That's so, what it's so. Rabbi Yosef, so yes. 3,332 years ago, the Torah was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. So that leads one to believe that next year will be 3333. Three, three, three. Yes. That is unique. Okay. <laughs> All right. Who wants to uh, start? Sure. I will insist that the Hebrews have done more to civilize men than any other nation. If I were an atheist and believed in blind eternal fate, I should, I should still believe that fate has ordained the Jews to be the most essential instrument for civilizing the nations. If I were an atheist of, an, of the other sect who believe or pretend to believe that all is ordered by chance, I should believe that chance had ordered the Jews to preserve and propagate all of mankind the doctrine of the supreme, intelligent, wise, almighty sovereign of the universe, which I believe to be the great essential principle of all morality and consequently of all civilization. Okay, so basically he's saying that the Jews, after receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai, they become a nation, and then they settle in Israel, and that's, you know, basically when Jewish history begins, or, well, Jewish history as a nation. Then, about a thousand years later, Christianity comes into the scene, <clears throat> you know, as a result of the very active missionary activities, they become the major uh, state religion of the Roman Empire. And then about 700 years later, Islam comes <clears throat> into the scene. And this is, th these are called famously the Abrahamic faiths. Now, so Right now we're just saying that Judaism contributed, you know, the religious ideals for what they say about 55% of the world. They say they're part of these Abrahamic faiths. But the real... 55%? 55%. Yeah. So, Buddhists and Hindus are not the majority. They're not. Yeah. Really? Well, think about it. There's, a, you know, more than a... And, and paganistic, I mean... If you, take, yeah. if you take Buddhists and Hindus and All Shinto and, and then pagan religions, yeah. you That's, would say that, that I, I, I find that hard to believe that Jews, Christianity, and Islam is well, it's the majority. Well, it's more Christian and Muslims, really, because Jews is 50 yeah, it's million. nothing, but right. still, I, okay, I'll check that out. Yeah, so I don't know, they, they say according to 2015 figures, I can tell you it's... Uh, tell you the site where they take it from. Okay. Anyway, so the real question is, what are, so okay, Judaism contributed religion. What are the ideas of the Jewish faith that have impacted civilization beyond religious belief? That's a real question. Aww. So let's look at um, the next exercise. And we're gonna talk about the, the Torah of social responsibility. Okay, so, Exercise 1.2, just to bring this point a little bit, you know, in, into the practical. Write down an instance in which you saw someone in need and helped them. Why did you help them? It's the right thing to do. I would want someone to help me. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Or, I mean, I remember one time uh, someone dropped like a bag with a lot of things. 
and I just had a natural, you know, reaction. I'm not gonna, you know, walk away. So I helped him. Yeah, I guess I just felt, you know, I felt bad, and I, I, I helped him. I felt good about it. This is the topic of my doctoral dissertation. This is what my doctorate was about, and um, there's a whole brand of research from the mid-60s. It all started after this woman in New York, Kitty Genovese, remember Kitty Genovese was killed, and 58 people in the building didn't. heard it and oh. did nothing, and it prompted the thought of, so why are people not helping one another? Mm. They just made a movie about her, about that. Well, this was the thing that started all this research about 1965. Oh. And, and the most convincing thing that I saw, if you ask people, so why do you help or don't you help, they had some theorists put out a series of questions that people ask themselves that are, you don't even think about it. Mm -hmm. Is it an emergency? If it's an emergency, is it my responsibility? Or whose responsibility is it? Is it my responsibility? Do I have the skills to help the person? Yeah. Does the person deserve help? If you think the person is drunk, versus they had a heart attack, you're going to decide differently, perhaps. Mm -hmm. right? So they came up with a very strong series of questions that people ask themselves before they make this. So it's not easy oh, to say, well, I saw the person needed help, so I helped them. It, and it was different. Like people would constantly stop and help people with flat tires on the highway till a few people got killed. Yeah. Then now, now people are defining it. Well, it's like an emergency, but it's not my responsibility. And it's too risky, so yeah. I'm not going to do it. Good Samaritan laws, you know, we, someone was hurt on the sidewalk, I'm not a doctor, if I help them and I hurt them, I'm responsible. Right. So, so, so as, we, as we have evolved, this is a very complex question. Right. And there's thousands of pieces of research that um, talk yeah, I'm about sure. what governs, not governs, but Decision what decisions making. people make when they decide to help somebody. All, all post-1965. That's wow. when the topic became a real research topic. Not that people didn't think about it before, but there wasn't a lot of research on this before then. So this is not an easy question. It's not a, not a, it's, it's not a, a, a question that's easy. Right. And none of the research that I saw had to do with what's part of my religion. Oh, okay. So I think the point of, of asking this question is, to, to, to show you where, 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 it came from. where, no, where it's coming from. Like, okay, it's the right thing to do. Meaning that nowadays, before your know, whole 1965 thing, nowadays, a lot of things are just, okay, because it's the right thing to do or reciprocal, like you said. So meaning just to, to see the attitudes that, that we have and then see where it comes in the Torah. That it's not just we're gonna see now that the the fathers of of, uh, of civilization or Judaism and to see the difference. I think it's just a, a way to to just to get you thinking. Okay, you know where does your attitude come from? Just because it's the right thing to do, you know everybody, you know anyone would do the same for me, something like that. But I'm sure it's not you know sim simplifying the question. I I'm going to offer you what my favorite study, and then I'll shut up for a while. <laughs> Three uh, uh, priests, rabbis, and another sect were all invited to give a speech on a campus 
about the Good Samaritan parable. They were told there were students waiting on the other side of the campus. All they needed to do was to walk there and give the speech about them. Of course, there was no students waiting, but on the way is a man lying in the ground mm. who needs help. I don't care which religion it was, they stepped over the man wow. to give a talk about the Good Samaritan parable, rabbis as well as priests and ministers and who, and who knows who. So you look at it and you go, okay, so do you want to talk about it or do you actually want to do something? Yeah. And he was blocking the walkway. They, they positioned him. There were no students there. The whole thing was to see would the person wow. stop to do it or would they go to, on to talk about it? Yeah, they had a huge percentage of the people of every. It made no difference what religion you they were. Had, they had a video on uh, Jimmy Kimmel. He had someone in the middle of Hollywood, like on the floor, and like nobody. Nobody had. Because people would say, okay, it's not my responsibility. Right. Somebody else should do it. I have to but, give a speech to this. It's more important, right? Right, but, that's, but this is exactly where we're trying to go. You're saying, a lot of people are saying now, well, it's not my responsibility. Right. That's exactly where we're trying to go. Okay. Is it your responsibility or is it not? And if yes, where does it come from? And all these values, what I'm trying to, to the, the purpose of this goal, of this course, is to show you how all the things that nowadays we take for granted, they have roots in the Torah. Not only do they have roots in the Torah, but they sh it shows you where it comes from. Why? Why are we all equal? You know, why do I have a responsibility towards someone that's, that has less than me? There was a famous question that uh, someone asked the rabbi. He said, why should I help poor people if God made them that way? Right? I mean, God made them poor, so there must be a reason. So he said, God makes them poor, so you have the opportunity to become a more godly-like person, more, to work on yourself, to become, you know, to give of yourself. So I thought, I, I always remember this question because it's, it, it makes you think, you know, it's true, you know, if we believe everything God makes is for, you know, for the best. So why should I help a poor person? So that's, that's one of the answers that he gave. Anyway, so let's, let's focus on the, on the, in other words, what I'm trying to say is, there, when, when we said, why do you help a person? It's because it's the right thing to do. So that's what, on the outside, that's the superficial, you know, what, what, we're, what we're thinking nowadays. But there is a very deep value behind it. And that's what we're, what we're trying to learn. Okay, so, of course, responsibility is a big, big theme in the Torah. And, um, but what's something interesting, there's a, a distinction between two very famous central personalities in the Torah. And those are Noah and Abraham. Noah and Abraham. And interestingly enough, Noah is known as the father of civilization. Because when God told him, I decided to reset the whole of creation. And I want you to build an ark. So he followed the orders. And the world was completely destroyed. And then only his family was saved. And then he began, you know, repopulating the world. So he's known as the father of civilization. But who is the father of, of the first Jew, the father of the Jews? It's Abraham. So the question is why, even though we all come ultimately from Noah, but why is, was Abraham chosen to be the father of, of the Jewish people? Why was he singled out? Now, 
by Noah, it says that he was the most righteous person in his generation. So what's, what's so specific about Abraham? So let's see. The, the answer is going to be in their different behavior when catastrophe came you know, into their life, in the world around them. So text number two, we're going to see what happened with Noah. Donovan, text number two. Oh, yeah. Uh, God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to all people. <coughs> For the earth is filled with robbery because of <coughs> And I am destroying them from the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Okay, that's... He follows orders. <coughs> Text number three, sorry, uh, what's her name? Daniel. Daniel. God said to Abraham that outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and of sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If it is, I will destroy them. Abraham approached and said to God, will you even destroy the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you destroy it and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? So what's the story with Noah? God told him, I want you to make an ark. Well, you know how long it took to, to build the ark? Many years. 120 years. Now, think about that. Noah, for 120 years, did not influence one person to, to change their ways. 120 years. And he worked very hard to build the ark. You know, don't get me wrong. And yet... He just followed orders. He was a righteous person. Yes, 100% righteous. But he did not realize that God said, yes, the people are wicked, but I want you to care. I want you to, you know, to, to try to, to do something about it. And yet he just followed orders. And the Torah is so like severe with him that the prophets, when they talk about the, the flood of Noah, they say, they call it the water of Noah. Why? And the Zohar explains, because he, he was not able to influence not one person, that's why the, the flood is, so to speak, called on his name. Because he didn't, you know, he, didn't, he didn't care enough. So Abraham, on the other hand, Abraham, even though Abraham was the epitome of kindness, and Sodom and, and I don't know what you call it in English. Gomorrah was the, the exact opposite. They would torture people that would invite guests. They were just the complete opposite of kindness. And yet, he prayed for them. And he not only he cared for them, he felt a certain responsibility towards them. That I can't just... That's why the, the moment God said, Okay, these guys are, are terrible, I'm getting rid of them. Right away, he starts, starts you, know, pray, you know, nudging God, saying, No, maybe, maybe there's 45, maybe there's 50... So maybe there's 30, 20, maybe it's 10. All these things trying to, you know, he, he really tried his best. That once God said, listen, there's no, there's nothing that I can do to, to fix this. You know, they're not going to change. Is that okay? You know, this is, I don't know, he tried. So he would try in Sodom and Gomorrah, and when it came time to sacrifice Isaac, he blindly accepts it. So that, that's definitely not the topic of today, but I can, I can talk to you about that. That's the exact same question I had. Because, it's, it's, I mean, in other words, that he says, okay, no ram, I'm, 
I'm killing my own son, but the evil people in Sodom and Gomorrah, come on, give him a break. Or maybe so, he had faith in God that he was going to... He probably did. But so there's, there's many, many, many explanations on, on the, the whole story. What is interesting is um, there's many in, interesting midrash. For example, there's one that Isaac... I, I got into it because I was very interested in this story. And there's a madrash that says that Satan came and told Isaac, your father's going cuckoo. He's, he's, once Isaac asked, uh, where are we going? He said, oh, well, I'm going to sacrifice you. Right. He said, don't worry, God will take care of you. <laughs> you know, God will, will, will have his own uh, sacrifice. And he understood that it was him. But they knew God has a plan. And think about this. Abraham was told that you will have a descendants from the Isaac. And right. yet, at the same point, we God tells him, I want you to sacrifice him. Now, what's interesting is, I, I'm saying the wrong words, because God didn't say, I want you to sacrifice your son. He said, <laughs> which means to elevate him, which was one of the first stages to... To put him on the altar. Right. But he never said, I want you to sacrifice him. So... Takes a knife in his hand? Well, because... No, meaning, he said, I want you to... It's in, in the words of the, of the Bible, it's to ha'aleu le'ola, which means, elevate. you know, elevate him, bring him up. And which was another, you know, key word for sacrifice him. Okay. So Abraham knew that he got a, a promise of descendants from Isaac, not from anyone else. And, you know, Isaac gets the Satan to try to convince him, maybe this guy is going, you know. Because think about this also, another thing. In those, in that era in that day and age uh, human sacrifice was rampant common. yeah it was very common and abraham was the only one that very strongly spoke against it he said no who are you to to sacrifice a human being and yet he went on because god told him he went on and he said i trust god 100 percent god told me that you don't do human sacrifices God told me I'm going to have descendants from Isaac. I don't know. This was the, by the way, this was the ultimate test of Abraham. Why was it the ultimate test? Because all the other tests were all about publicizing God. When he was thrown into the, the oven, he, it was all about, so to speak, you know, God's marketing. It was great PR for God. Because this guy was just jumping in the fire just to, to let everybody know about God. This was the only one that no one, no one was around. Think about it. It was the first test that no one would know. No one would know if he killed Isaac or didn't kill him. It was just him and God, and Isaac, of course. And not only that, he... It was the complete opposite of his nature. He was kindness, he was caring, he was just giving. And this was the complete opposite of, of his nature. So the, the reason... The, Whoever instigated this was the, the evil side. He said, oh, you, you think Abraham is really faith, faithful to you? He really, you know, he's just doing it because it's his nature. He just likes to publicize. He loves you. And he likes to, you know, give over that, that message. But if you would go something against him, he would never do it. That's why that was the ultimate test. And once he, you know, he succeeded in that test... He didn't need any more tests. So there's, there's definitely a lot to talk about. 
But you, ha- you have to understand that, especially someone to the, in the level of Abraham, he was, you know, like this with God. So he knew, this is what God asked me, I'm going to do it. Yeah, now, I mean, his, his, his faith in God was counted to him as righteousness. That's meaning, he knew, he knew. He knew that even if he had to go through with killing Isaac, I believe that deep down in his heart, he knew that God would probably bring him back to life. Either, Either that, or he knew, or he knew that it was just a test. That's it. Also, there's another midrash that says that when Abraham was walking towards, you know, Mount Moriah, the Satan came in in the forms of like rivers and crossing, you know, because he was trying to get him out of it, not to do it. But it's a, it's a, it's a oh, big topic. The Hasatan was trying to stop Abraham from doing it. And yeah, also, he was trying. He was trying to stop Abraham. He tried to convince Abraham Isaac to, out of it. To disobey God. So did this, this passage right oh. here come after the test? Yeah. Uh, actually, Genesis 18. Mm, I'm not sure. It, it could be used before. Could be was before. Actually, I'm pretty convinced. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this was before the whole Sodom and Gomorrah. Because like, I think Abraham was, was still childless like, at that like, time. I think another thing that's worth noting in this section on the text three, Abraham is here not. He's bargaining with God for the sake of the righteousness that is still left in Sodom and Gomorrah, not to the for the wicked directly, you know, it's actually, you talk, touch a very interesting topic because um, you might think, okay, he didn't really care about the wicked. So what, there's also a lot of commentaries. In fact, there's even a, a, a talk by the Rebbe that in a way, when he was saying about the righteous people, he was saying, it was like, trying not to go directly for the wicked, meaning not to tell God, hey, don't kill the wicked, because whatever, this, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting topic. But basically, the, it says that the, the righteous people, they are the foundation of the world. And we, we, we explained it a bit, you know, in, in the previous, previous course. And it's basically God kind of gives, uh, gives righteous people the... the the power to really, you know, make, make the, the holiness, you know, in the world. Basically, the world cannot exist without holiness. Without holiness, the, which means something of God, the world can't continue. So that's why God places righteous people in every generation to continue. And then the purpose of the righteous people is to, you know, try to sell, you know, God and holiness to the people. So Abraham was, it's funny because the, the Midrash says that this was a shortcoming on, on Abraham's part. This, that he negotiated, was it shortcoming? No, 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 that he negotiated for the righteous, meaning he, he wanted, he cared for the wicked, but it was through the righteous people. Who, you know who was perfect? Or, or his negotiation was, was a bit incomplete. Who was perfect? Was Moses. Moses was the one that actually prayed for the Jews. That were, there was no righteous. He didn't say, oh, maybe there's righteous people there. No, he prayed for the Jews themselves, Whoa. the wicked themselves. They just sinned, and he didn't pray, oh, maybe there's righteous No, no, he prayed for them directly. So what the Madash says that Abraham prayed indirectly for the wicked. But it's, it's a very good point because Abraham's, it's actually recorded as a shortcoming of him. 
because he didn't direct, go directly for the wicked. So it's a very, very good point. So Abraham negotiates and, and he gets his reward. Moses negotiates and he doesn't get to Israel because he doesn't, well, because he doesn't strike the rock. The, well, I forget. No, the, that's, a, that's a, a... Something a, else. Yeah, no, it's not just okay. the rock. Okay. It, there's yeah, a lot it's, more. It's, yeah, there's a lot. And, and, and also if you look at it, if you look at it, you know, from the top, the, the, for, for what Moses did there, what had what happened to him because of the little let's call it the little misdemeanor was so big it didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. But that rock, it actually, I mean, and yeah, there is something more in the rock. They well, so that the, that it's the, that, that's it, a, that's a, let's a let's let's you know keep it aside. Yeah. Okay. It was definitely more than just you know hitting okay. a rock. Yeah. I just wanted to also yeah. comment that I read this as him seeing the righteousness within the wicked. Every one of us has a kernel of some potential. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. So that, yeah, that, I, I, uh, I agree with that. It was, but the, the, what you pointed out is that, that the Midrash does mention it, that Abraham was not complete because he didn't go directly for the righteous. But I like the, that, um, uh, I don't know how to say it. The righteousness within the Right. It's actually interesting because by the seder, one of the things we say the the four the, there's the four kids right. By the seder we say there's four children, and we talk about the, the the wise one, the wicked one, the the simple one, and the one that doesn't know how to ask questions. So it's interesting that the Hasidic philosophy says the wording is there's one there's four kids one wise one wicked one simple and one that doesn't know how to ask. So why does it say one by, you know, everyone? Just say four and, and just say who they are. Why does it say one wise, one? Because every person really, not only every Jew, has that oneness of God inside. It doesn't matter, you know, how they look on the outside. So that, that's nice. So the bottom line was that Noah is not the father of, of, of the Jewish faith because... He did not have that trait, that trademark, that he cared for the people and he felt a sense of responsibility. And this was Abraham's advantage. He said, you know, it doesn't matter what they're doing. I'm here. I can do something. I have a responsibility. And, yeah. The light to all nations. Noah was a light to no one. Exactly. And Abraham <laughs> exactly. was a light to all nations before that was even given as something to be right that's why that's why he was chosen uh, that's why God chose Abraham to be the father of the Jewish faith because he epitomized that kindness that caring that sense of responsibility so uh, let's go on text number four Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him for I love Abraham because he instructs his children and his household to follow the path of God by doing charity and justice. So his greatness is the fact that he inherited, so to speak, that, that trait of kindness. And the attitude of responsibility and care for others is a basic principle of the Torah. And uh, we're going to see now in the, in the upcoming texts that 
you know, first we're going to see, look at the, the principle, and then we're going to see the specifics. Actual mitzvot, actual commandments that reflect that sense of caring, that sense of responsibility towards the, honestly, not, not only towards the, the poor people, but towards anyone. So I'll read text number five. All Jews are responsible for each other. We are like a ship where a hole has been ruptured in one room. It cannot be said that one room has been ruptured. The entire ship is ruptured. Are we responsible for people that are not Jews? Yes. For, for uh, yeah, 100%. There is definitely differences in the, in the Jewish law in uh, certain aspects. For example... Um, the laws that we're going to read, uh, where is that? The figure 1.1, the laws in the fields, those are um, certain, some of those are only for Jewish people. Because that's, you know, how the, um, there's that sense of, of uh, community? Yeah, Jewish community. So the, the, so we Usually? love everybody, but just not as much. No, no, it's not just as much. It's more like we're more responsible. No, I'll, put, I'll word it differently. We're more responsible for, for the Jewish people than others. In other words, you're more responsible for your family than someone that's not your family, right? Sure. So that's, that's how I... Um, for usually, the, all the laws of, of charity and all that stuff, it's, there's no distinction because, you know... Because um, they don't say when they say take care of the widow, take care of the orphan. They don't say the Jewish widow. Right. I'm a Jewish orphan. Right. Just so say widow and orphan. usually the helping the, the less fortunate, the Torah does not. In fact, the Torah specifically in you know the halakha, the law says that you shouldn't make any distinction between you know different faiths. Um, you know, if someone needs, there's a, a great story of this rabbi that said, um, another rabbi, this real rich person. The, the author of the Tanya, the father of Chabad, he once came to him and he stayed by his inn. And he, he was a very, you know, he, he gave big donations and he was very charitable. And he just, he just loved it. He was so passionate about his giving. And he told the Alter Rebbe, he told him, like, I feel terrible that I have such pleasure. Like, I really do it out of pleasure. I feel bad because... You know, there's no like, I don't feel any altruistic. It's purely for my pleasure. So he said, he told him like, while your feeling is maybe not so genuine, all the people that are taking it, they're taking it very genuinely. You know, all the poor people are taking your donation very genuinely. It, it's okay if you don't feel genuine about it, you know. So in other words, you know, the Torah didn't make distinction because... It's okay that you feel good about giving it. Well, not only that, I'm not saying stressing so much at that point. In, in other, what I'm trying to stress is, it in giving to the less fortunate, it doesn't really matter. You know, your feeling, they're they're very happy. You know that they're, they're receiving. Still benefiting no matter what your right. intentions are. Okay. Exactly. That's why the Torah didn't make distinction between. Okay. So, in other words, what we're saying from this text is that social responsibility animates many many laws. And um, so in Jewish law, just helping someone else, you know, for example, um, there's a law that says that if you see someone, actually, not someone, 
you see your enemy, that his donkey is having trouble with his load, you should help him. Okay? And, you know, if you, if you in, in our day and age, if you see someone in, in, in need of help, you should help him. But what the Torah is saying, it's not just goodwill. It's your obligation. And the reason is, and this is definitely, you know, uh, inspired by the Jewish faith when, and, and Hasidic philosophy, that whatever you presented is there for a reason. God made it that this person right here in front of you needs your help. So that is a proof that this person needs your help, and therefore you can help him. Now, I, I def, there are definitely you know exceptions to the rule. In other words, you know if you really, a for example, this rabbi said a, a he said a, an example. He said one time this person, a person that he knew, came to him and he said I I they you know they're evicting me, I need thirty seven hundred dollars. So you know he didn't know what to do. So he, he called. He asked his uh, mentor. And he said, you know, help him. I, I said, I I I can uh, predict that you're not going to see the money back, but you know you should give it to him. So so he gave him. And in fact, he did not see the money back. And a few months later, he sees this person. He says, you know, how is it going? He says, well, actually, I need some more money. He says, okay, <laughs> you understood. So sometimes I'm not saying that whenever someone needs your help. It means you have to help him or, you know, sometimes you have to help him in, in you know, in, in different ways. But, Give him a job. Right. So that, that's also definitely a topic we're going to talk about today. But in, in the, the general rule is if you are presented with this person and you can help them, that is, that is your purpose. God is giving you this. So it's not just goodwill. It's your obligation. So it's very... That's why in Israel they take care of the terrorists? Um, Do you think? Like in the hospital? Well, in some hospital situations, some I mean, taking Palestinian children that have been hurt in right. Israeli attacks. Well, so I, think, I, I think they also do it because they know no one else will. Oh. So, yeah, definitely, you know, the Israelis have, have, not only in Israel, but also in whenever there's, you know, uh, tragedies around the world, the Israelis known to be one of the first ones to send aid. So that's, you know, definitely you can say that's... But think about that. That's a sense of responsibility. I can help. I'm going to help. But you're taking care of a child who comes from a world that absolutely hates and has horrible intentions that can grow up. It's sort of like if you met Hitler as a child. Right. Actually, there's, there are many stories that... He had some troubles, and Jews helped him. So, I, I mean, this is going into the, their beliefs of the Israeli people. I don't know how much is, it is inspired by, you know, the Jewish law or Jewish... It's, I think it's, they do it out of goodwill and, and because they feel a sense of responsibility. Okay. Now, it is very possible, and I, I know actually, that not only they treat children, they treat terrorists. Yeah. That they... You know, they, they perp perpetrate, you know, a crime and, and they, they treat them. And, and the terrorists themselves, they say, I, I'm going to go out, out of here and I'm going to come back and do it again. So that's def definitely, you know, not today's topic and it's just, it pains, you know, it's, an, it's 
it hurts. <coughs> anyway, so uh, the obligation to care for others is not just in, in uh, material assistance, but it's also in, in uh, morals. We have the obligation to, in fact, the, the, the wording that the Torah uses is that you should not uh, put a stumble between, in, in front of a, a, a blind person. And the Talmud explains that this, it, it's, it's not only in the literal sense, but a lot of times there's people that are so spiritually blind or morally blind, and you, you want to help them. You don't, you, know, you don't want them to stumble. So that's also part of our sense of, of caring for others, not just in material aspects, but also in the moral, you know, choosing right from wrong and showing them the right way. So a lot of laws in the Torah reflect this sense of responsibility. So in summary, Abraham cared for the plight of the wicked people and he petitioned God on their behalf. And that responsibility and kindness to, towards others that Abraham exemplified is the reason God chose him as the forefather of the Jewish people, as this principle animates many mitzvahs in the Torah. Now let's go into the Torah of charity, which is, I think, very, very um, fascinating because the word itself, charity, is already uh, inaccurate. All right, so let's let's go into it. Um, so let's go into it. Text number six. If there will be a needy person among you, one of your brothers in one of your cities in your land that your God is giving you shall not harden your heart, and you shall not close your hand to your needy brother. Rather, you shall open your hand to him and give him enough to supply what he lacks. Now, I want to point out, by the way, if you look at the, 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 the words that the, the, the Torah uses, if, if there will be a needy person among you, one of your brothers, so that's the, the closest to you, and then in, in one of your cities, in your land. Okay, so you see, this is the, so to speak, what comes first. First is your brother, then your city, and then your land. So it's interesting. Family first. Right, right. And now we can see in figure 1.1, we shouldn't, um, I think, focus too much on them because it's a lot of details. But basically we can see over here different mitzvahs, different commandments and their definition. And these are specific mitzvahs that the Torah gives to, uh, to, uh, to us. And very specific, when you harvest, you have to leave a corner of your field you know, for the poor people. Or when you're gathering the harvest into bundles, anything that falls, leave it for the poor to take. If you're gathering the produce and you forget something, of course, there's a lot of details. How much and, and you know, how often, but you have to leave it. The same thing works with the grapes. And the last one, which is very uh, interesting, Maserani, during the third and sixth years of the seven-year cycle, one-tenth of all produce should be given to the poor. Now, this is, of course, in biblical times, the biggest, you know, uh, financial uh, productivity was based on the field, you know, agriculture. So that's why the Torah says all these uh, laws to show you about, you know, you have to care for the poor. So now, very interesting question. 
Is it a, and this is where, you know, the, the Jewish value comes up, comes out. Is it a individual responsibility? Which, until now, it seems like it's an individual responsibility. If I have, I have to give. Or if I see someone that needs, that I can help, I have to help them. The question is, is it also a communal responsibility? And we could, you know, go even further and talk about, we're not going to talk about it, but just to say the word, government, communal, communal responsibility, governmental responsibility. And, and there's a very interesting, we're going to go through a, um, a dispute that happened in the 13th or early 14th century in Spain. And text number seven is the question that the community, there was a dispute between the upper class and the middle class. And the question was like this. There's a lot of you know, need, there's a lot of poor people, and, and times were tough. I mean, just think about it, it was about 100 years before. No, sorry, it was the 14th century, it's 1300. 1300s. Okay, so it, there was still another 150 years until the Inquisition, but, or 190 years. But, okay, there was a lot of need, there was a lot of poor people, and the upper class said, okay, we understand that we need to help them. So, it's because it's an individual responsibility, so I'm going to give however, you know, how, how much I, I see I want. And the middle class was saying, well, it's not just an individual responsibility, there is a communal aspect to it, and therefore, because you have more, you have to give more. It's not just, I give however, you know, how much I want. So this was the, the argument. So let's look at number, text number seven. Donovan? There are many poor people in the city. Okay. And, and the, and the cost of living is high. <laughs> A dispute has arisen between the well-off members of the community the wealthy upper class argues that the poor should go collecting door to door and we will all give them food every day to sustain them because the middle class is also obligated to feed the poor just as we are. The middle class disagrees and says that the poor should not be made to go out and beg because they are our brethren. They argue that the sustenance of the poor is a communal obligation and all must con contribute toward this in accordance with their wealth. Please let us know which side is correct. So text, we're not going to do the, the partner thing. We're going to do the read text 8a and then tell me what you think is the learn the, the lesson that we learned from this uh, from this text. What do we learn from this? Um, I mean, uh, if you want to, you want to read it? High form of charity is to give to the poor without the givers knowing to whom they give and without the recipients knowing from whom they receive. For this is performing a mitzvah solely for the sake of heaven. Giving to a charity fund is similar to this mode of charity. A lesser level than this is when the givers do not know to whom they give, but the poor know their benefactors. For example, the sages used to tie coins into cloths and throw them behind their backs so that the poor would be able to come and take the coins out of the cloth without being so what do you think is the, this text teaching us about, you know, helping the poor or anything like that? You don't have to be known to do it. It's actually better if you don't 
reveal yourself if this hide and do it. Right. In other words, preserve the dignity of the poor people. Yeah, don't embarrass. If they have to go door to door, that can be humiliating and cause more suffering. But if they all gave to like, okay, every every whatever day you come here and pick right. up with food, like if they're grocery shopping, let right. them keep their dignity. It's already right. bad enough that they're struggling and have to ask. Let them keep their dignity. Right. So that's that's the first lesson. They have to keep preserve their dignity. Text eight B. One second. In Europe, I, I went to Prague, and they have people begging in the street, but they have their heads down. So they have a, a basket or a hat out, and they hope you'll give it, but you don't look at them in the face. And I don't know whether. That's to not embarrass them, whether they don't know who's giving what to whom. But in Europe, that seems to be more so the United States, the style here. It's more like will, have will, will, will look at you and, and request from you. Mm. And there it seemed, at least in, in Prague, it was like that. Mm. Interesting. I mean, I, I remember in Milan, it was definitely... It's interesting. It's interesting. It could be it's di they, they come from different backgrounds. Yeah, I think so. I think maybe the the I'm I'm I might be saying something very you know stupid, but maybe the homeless of from America or some of them come from more uh, from a better place, so to speak, and therefore they have that dignity that they can ask you face to face. Mm -hmm. Maybe the people in Europe have like completely no you know self worth or whatever so they don't even look at you I do remember like cultural thing yeah that's what I'm saying I think the Americans have a bit more self-respect pride that's yeah no I, that's what I'm thinking I don't know if I it mean, makes I think in Israel what I saw in Israel and I don't remember what, 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 um, what I mean Israel. The, the what I my experience there they can be pretty uh, aggressive yes <laughs> no maybe because they have such self-respect Israelis, I don't know. It's interesting. It, it, that, but what, what the, know this mitzvah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the bottom line is you have to preserve, preserve. What we're really, really trying to figure out is this dispute. Is it a communal thing or is it individual? So the first thing we learn is you have to preserve the dignity of the poor people. So the best way is for them not to know who is giving and for the givers not to know who's getting, who's receiving. Text 8b. Wait, I want to say one more thing. Yes. But if you believe that it's God's money, it's not your money anyway, then it doesn't matter who's, if it's individual or communal responsibility. Because Chabad believes it's God's money, right? Chabad? Does no, it? The Torah believes it's... Right, so well, we're going to talk believes, about it. So the Torah believes it's God's money, so why does it matter whether it's an individual giving it or a community giving it? Well, it's because... God's money anyway. Well, <laughs> because... God, what does it mean that it's God's money? God, so to speak, he decides trusts who gets you. what. He, he, he decides who gets what. Right? Well, well, so in the Torah, that, that's exactly the point of this, of this dispute. The question wasn't, what do you think, Rabbi? Whenever the, the, the people would ask a rabbi, a Talmudic, the, the person that the, the rabbi, the, this question was asked, his name was Rabbi Shlomo Ben Adelet, the Rashba, was a very famous Talmudic sage. So when they were asking the question, it wasn't like, what do you think? 
They're asking, what does the Torah say that is, and the lesson that we're going to learn is exactly that. The Torah is going to tell you that giving money or giving God's money, like you're saying, it's not only an individual, uh, it's not only an individual responsibility, it's also a communal responsibility. And therefore, if you have more, that means God gave you more, so you have to give more. Not just you could give more. If God gives you more, it means God is telling you, you, sh- you have to give more. So this is exactly the point of this, of this dispute. The Torah says it's not only an individual responsibility. And that's the difference. Clearly the Republicans believe they're the exception to that. <laughs> they be the wealthy one. Well, <laughs> well, but you know what? I think one time I, I read an article that said that is God uh, liberal Democrat or, or Democrat? And it's, he's neither or he's both. <laughs> so you got that. Okay, okay so 8B. Um, okay. It is, real, is it really true that collectors for the communal charity fund may seize contributions? But doesn't the verse state, I will punish all that oppress them? Jeremiah 30, 20. And Rabbi Yitzhak bar Shmuel bar Martha expounded in the name of Rav, God will mete out punishment even to charity collectors. If charity collectors are permitted to compel people to contribute charity, why are they counted among Israel's oppressors? This is not a difficulty. When the contributors are wealthy and have not contributed, what they are capable of, the collectors may seize money from them. However, when the contributors are not wealthy and the collectors are seizing more than they are capable of giving, the collectors are termed oppressors of Israel. So here you see another difference between is it individual responsibility or is it communal? If it's just individual, who are you to tell me what to do? You know, bug off. But if it's a communal responsibility, then they can compel someone that didn't give enough, that could give more. Now, not someone that already gave, you know, enough, but someone that could give more, they can compel him because it's not just an individual responsibility, it's a communal. And to finish up, oh, sorry. Ah, yeah, yeah, Hmm. before 8C. So I'm going to read it. This right to compel the wealthy to contribute is illustrated in the case of Rava who seized 400 dinners from Rabbi Nathan Bar-Ami for charity. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai met the daughter of Nakdimon Ben-Gurion in their conversation. She told him that her father had not been charitable. So the question is, how, how, how can you say such a thing? But didn't Nakdimon Ben-Gurion give charity? Indeed, Abraisa states that people would say about Nakdimon Ben-Gurion that when he would leave his home to go to the study hall, his attendants would spread fine woolen garments underneath him for him to walk on, and he would allow the poor to follow him and take the expensive garments for themselves. So although Nakdimon gave much charity, in proportion to his wealth, he did not give as much as he should have. As the saying goes, the burden is set according to the strength of the camel. So now, Sorry, I have a problem with, like, he's stepping on garments? Okay, so he's, like, using... Know, like the analogy with the, the field is that there's things that drop or you leave it right. to someone else to pick up. It's not you take a bite, toss it, and then right. let someone 
Right. Use it as charity. So, so he's not. He, he basically. He was just throwing. It was like he was throwing money, basically. No, it's not that. It's, he's like. He's walking on the stuff that the. He's walking on it, so his feet don't hurt, and then he's leaving it for the poor people. Yeah, that's wrong. Is that's, that what you're saying? Yeah, to me, yeah, that's um, wrong. That's an insult. It yeah. could. It could be that. Um, in, it was just like a, a carpet, in other words. So he, he, he would he would go on it either way. You know, he, that was his. He was so rich that whenever he would walk, he would walk on this garments or this carpet, let's call it. But his way of giving charity was that whenever he would walk, wherever he would walk, he would leave it for the poor people. And I guess I I, I didn't look into this. Uh, context. I'm guessing it was it was his way of giving charity all the time. Whenever he would walk, he knew already pe- poor people would gather and. Wait, but wouldn't it, I'm gonna agree with you here and say wouldn't it be disrespectful to somebody say I already walked on it now you can have it. I I don't think the the. It's a metaphor, maybe. Is it... I don't. I, I I think like this. I think the the we could be you know taking maybe. Translation, maybe oh. I don't know. I could I could look at the the actual uh, the um, the actual you know source. Um, I just think that the, what they're trying to say over here, he's he was very charitable. Good. That's what you he was saying. very charitable. That whenever he would walk, he would, and I, I'm assuming he would walk, you know, at least once a day. You know, whenever wherever you would walk, he was always giving to people. Yeah. That's my. That's what I, what I translate. I giving, okay. okay. So what I what I, I um, it could be it could be that in this, um, you know the 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 madrash is it the Talmud. It's a brayta. So okay. So it's it's not a def- definite source. It's like a a, a brayta. It's like the Talmud was basically a a. Uh, there was many editions written by the, the rabbis of the, of the Talmud. So the Talmud is the final uh, edition, so to speak. So the Brisa is the previous editions. So we, all, we learn a lot of things from them. Um, I think it could be that they're saying, while they're saying he was so charitable, they're kind of you know, leaving a sting mm-hmm. to say he was charitable, but he wasn't mm-hmm. you know, the most uh, charitable I think maybe it could be that that's you know what the the same time that they're trying to say how charitable he was, they're saying you know how he was because they're saying in perfect. proportion to how wealthy he was, he wasn't giving as much as he could have. It was just basically like scraps. Right. He could have given more. Much more. Right. Okay. So the the bottom line of the of the story is that we see that a you have to preserve the dignity of the people. B, you have to, um, you could compel people, you could, you know, seize someone to give more, if he could give more. And three is every, the wealthier the person, the more he has to give. And therefore, Rashba's uh, answer to that dispute was, the middle class is right. They could, you know, create a communal tax and, and force you to give more than what you want to give and the wealthier you are the more you have to give so shouldn't that be for like dues 
The what? Or, like here when once a year, you know, it's like membership fees or fees for like the security. Is It's based on family size usually, but it's not based on income. I don't know. I don't know if, if uh, this specific communal tax was was more a European uh, oh, okay. custom. No, I'm just it never asking. it never really happened in America because yes. there was no real authority that can because there's so many different congregations, different cultures. So there's no one, no one authority that can compel anyone to do anything. Yeah. So. Um, but I did want to add. You know, on A, where it says the highest form of charity is to give to the poor without the givers knowing to whom they give, and also the recipients not knowing. Well, the recipients not knowing is for dignity, but the giving, the giver not knowing who to, they give, I think is, you know, people give and they want to know where the money. No, they hold it over people. They don't have pure intentions. Then they're just like, well, you owe me because I gave you da 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 da. And remember, I helped you out, so that's why. That's an it becomes a power trip. That's exactly. Oh, you're you're explaining why. Why not to why the giver no, shouldn't know who they give exactly. because then they don't know who to go to and be like, exactly. hey, you owe me. Exactly. Or aren't I great? I just helped you out. Right. Yeah. And and that's definitely yeah, hundred percent. And um, it's a very it was a very important thing because. The moment you give someone something, even if it's not money, just give something, there's already a feeling of like, you owe me something, you know? Yeah. So that, that was, that's why it was It's a pretty like, universal thing that the, in the archetypes and the mythology of what a hero <coughs> is, and that's exactly what a hero is. A hero is someone who does the right thing without expectation right of a reasons. reward yeah. and, and anonymously. Right. Like, oh. One helps, and it's fairly universal because, I mean, many, many cult, different cultures have that story or a story or a myth of that where yeah. that's kind of a the archetype of the hero right so i don't know but that's it, it's at least parallel to what's in judaism whether judaism motivated it or whether it's just so know, let's let's parallel. find out Who knows? um so that's really interesting the the final uh the the end of that story of the dispute was that the rich people after they lost basically so they told him, you know, times are rough. Times are, you know, it's tough nowadays. So he told him that um, not only is money in short supply, but also common sense. <laughs> <laughs> That's how he, he answered them. So, of course, the bottom line is you have to protect the poor people's dignity. And uh, there's a fascinating report from an outsider how, you know, the Jewish charitable system was working. And his name is Lancelot Addison. He was an English writer and a, a <clears throat> clergyman of the Church of England in the second half of the 17th century. And he was, he was working as a chaplain in Morocco for seven years. And while he was there, he became familiar with the Jews and the Jewish community. So he was very impressed. And he was so impressed that he, he even wrote a book, The Present State of the Jews. So text number nine. Uh, yes. Those who, those who have observed that the Jews have no beggars seem not well informed of the manner of their alms and their way of providing for the poor. For it is true that we may not reckon these people among beggars, as the word usually implies seeking relief from house to house. 
For though among the Jews in Barbary there is a great store of needy persons, yet they are supplied for in a manner which much conceals to men of other religions their poverty. For the wealthier take care to provide for them and very much glorify their religion upon this score, that they live under the, its profession in a more mutual charity of alms than either the Moor or Christian, both of which I have heard upbraiding their common beggars with great insult. And it cannot be denied that the Jews' manner of relieving the poor is proper and commendable. So, interestingly, there was a... It, it, it's possible that the notion, you know, one of the biggest misconceptions or justifications of anti-Semitism, oh, the Jews have all the money, they control everything, because it's, it's not very common to see, like, because the Jewish community, you know, is always helping, you know, the, the people that need, so it's, it's, it's probably an old sentiment that came, you know, through till, till today, but I think that was the, one of the old, uh, how do you say, like, one of the old libels, whatever, is that the Jews have all the money. Because they never really saw so much Jewish poverty. And the truth was, because th there was a lot of, there was a system that the Torah really inspired to prevent or to help the poor. So that's, I think, could be one of the reasons that people had that. That notion. I think different in the Middle Ages that Jews were not allowed to be tradespeople, so they, they were became, merchants and they became right. money lenders. Right. And Bankers of course, there are Jews who were usurers and who right. charged exorbitant interest. So, right. although we're not supposed to charge interest to other Jews, we're allowed to charge interest to right. other people. That's how they made money. And Jew Jews made money doing that, and other yeah. people resented that. So, yeah. but they created it by not allowing Jews into the guilds and the trades. Right. So. I don't know, but that's, you know, there was a logic to that. There's, yeah, yeah. There's, you know, it's not a, yeah. just a, a yeah, anti-Semitic anti belief. There was, I mean, that story. happened. Yeah. didn't say it happened with everybody, but... Right, but if you think about it, it was their fault. <laughs> well, okay. Meaning they... they the Non-Jews? They, they, exclu yeah, they, they excluded right. Jews from other professions, they so created, the only professions... Yeah that they, they were allowed to the do. the thing that they are now saying right. that they hate. Right. The reason they, they stopped them from owning land and everything was because, also for, for the same reason, because Jews were buying more and more real estate, so less Christians were owning the land, and therefore they couldn't take the tithe from the Jews. So they were getting less and less money. Whatever, that's it's a different topic. Anyway, so let's, let's continue with uh, talking about charity. So... You know, communal fund is a great, you know, taking care of the poor people. But the truth is there, there is even a higher form of, of charity. And that is poverty prevention. And we're going to see a very, very interesting law in the Torah that is a structure to prevent, uh, you know, people to, to become poor. So... Sorry, text number 10, Donovan. Yeah, the highest form of charity exceeded by none is that of a person who assists poor Jews by providing them with a gift or a loan or making a business partnership for them or by finding them employment, supporting them so that they will not come to need other people's help. All right, this is a very famous quote. Yeah, the fishermen. 
Exactly. Give, give a fish, he lives for one day. Teach him how to fish, and he, he lives, you know, forever. So, um, so let's uh, continue with text number 11. There's an interesting law. It's called the law of the Jubilee year. Basically, there is every seven years, there's sabbatical year. So you stop working the land. And every 50 years, basically, the, the Jewish people, when they came to Israel, they were all, uh, they all gave, got a share of a land. Every family, if it was a bigger family, they gave more. And if it was a smaller family, they got less. But the bottom line is everybody had, inherit, every family inherited a piece of land. And the law of Jubilee year was that every 50 years, no matter, no matter what, the land would return to their, you know, an, an ancestor, how do you say? Ancestral, basically the first owners. And that prevented, basically that gave a certain stability that no matter what, in however many years it's going to take, you're always going to get back some land. So you're going to be, in those days, land was the most, you know, stable. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, pro, you know, way to provide income. So let's, let's read text number 11. Yeah. Um, you shall give the land as an inheritance to your families. A large family shall be given a larger inheritance, and a smaller family should receive a smaller inheritance. Right, so because people, you know, sometimes they needed money for a short term, so they would sell their land, and every 50 years, they would get the land back. Mm-hmm. And, um, okay, so let's read. We have Jubilee already, right? I remember. Well, Jubilee year nowadays doesn't really, you know, work because it's, it's all based on, uh, there's a lot of, you know, prerequisites. A, most Jews have to, have to live in Israel, and you need the... Uh, right, you need the, the the temple. Well, not directly, but you you also need the temple. You need everybody to know which which tribe we come from, which is not possible nowadays. So right, right now we just have the concept, but it's interesting to see how this was a uh, a structure. And unfortunately, I don't have the video, but maybe I can send you guys an email with a video that's going to show how. Uh, well, I'm going to show you. I'm going to tell you about it later, that a lot of, you know, throughout history, until Thomas Jefferson, they were all very much inspired by the concept of Jubilee year to, to uh, you know, that's how they, they uh, conducted their, their government. That's how they, they saw the best way to continue, you know, to lead their, their uh, ideal of a government. Okay, so yeah, Danielle. If your fellow becomes poor and sells some of his inherited property, his nearest relative shall come and redeem his relative's sale. If there is no one to redeem it for him, but he later prospers and gains sufficient means to redeem it himself, he shall calculate the value of the years for which the land had been sold and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it. He can then return to his inheritance. But if he cannot afford to repay the buyer, what was sold shall remain in the buyer's possession until the jubilee year. Then the ju- then in the jubilee year, the land shall revert to the possession of its ancestral owner. So basically, it was never really a sale. It was always a lease. And, and the question is, why? What's the reason for this law? 12b. God established the jubilee laws 
of the return of land because one's livelihood depends on the possession of fields that generate produce. God doesn't want a person to be left without a means of livelihood and therefore instituted that lands cannot be sold forever. And of course, you know, in those days, livelihood depended on, on uh, a field, on agriculture. And therefore, God created a system to provide basically financial stability. Now, of course, this was not, you know, uh, infallible. And, uh, you know, people still, there were still poor people because, you know, 50 years is not a short time. But the idea to, to tell, it's to, to, to show you that the highest form of charity is not just to provide poor people, but it's to prevent poverty. poverty. That's, the, that's the ideal, really, the ultimate. The ultimate in, in, in the sense that what, I, what we said before, that the Torah wants you to know that the best way is to prevent poverty, not just... In other words, when, when, the, when God you know, shows you poor people... He doesn't want you just to help them. If you have a way, prevent it. That's, that's the... And of course, we, we, as we said before, it's not just in, in financial matters, but it's in anything that we can help anyone. In fact, there's a beautiful story, really, really nice story about... Um, it was in the, right at the end of the Holocaust. And um, unfortunately, after the, the Jews or the concentration camps were were freed, a lot of uh, prisoners died when the Americans came because the, the moment they saw so much food, they, they, you know, they jumped at it. And unfortunately, a lot of them, their stomachs you know, couldn't take it. And a lot of them died like that. So when, when they, the soldiers realized that's, you know, that's what ha was happening, so they, they, you know, they said a new order. There's no, you know, there's gonna be a time in the middle of the day, that everybody's going to get the same, you know, ratio of food, and you know, no, there's no exception whatsoever because it's really a matter of, the, of life and death. So this American soldier is, you know, in the concentration camp, and suddenly there's this little kid, you know, of course, bones, that comes up to him and he says, you know, in Yiddish, he says, "Please give me bread. I'm, I'm hungry." He says, "I'm sorry. I, I know. I, I have to follow orders. I can't give you bread." And he starts crying, please give me bread, I'm hungry. He doesn't know what to do. So he just gets on his knees and he just gives him a hug. And, you know, suddenly he opens his eyes and he sees a whole oh, row God. of children, you know, waiting for a hug. Mm. So a lot of times, you know, when people are asking for bread, really all they need is, you know, love. So that's a, I love that story. So, the, we basically said that there's two levels to prevent poverty. A, care for the poor and prevent poverty. And as we said, there's, for both preventing and helping the poor, there's individual responsibility and there's a communal component. Right? For example, in, from the individual point of view, if you can give jobs or, or give loans, or help people, then that's your individual responsibility. And, um, and that's to prevent poverty. And, in, and on the communal side, the, the, the 
communal or the government or the authority would, would give people land to prevent poverty. And if it happened that people became poor and they needed help, so A, on the individual side, you know, people would give. And then, you know, there's all the, those mitzvahs, leave the corner of the field, and every three years. And on the communal side, there were taxes for people to help the poor. But what is the bottom line of the, of the, the theory of the Torah? And this is where it really comes down, and it really switches the way you think about, about charity. And, and text number 13, the land shall not be sold permanently because the land is mine. And you reside in my land as temporary dwellers and residents. Now, you can look at it, you know, don't look at it as, you know, like they say Putin is the richest man in the world because he, he's a partner with basically every business in Russia. So he's, he's the richest man in the world. So in other words, God, if you think about it, is the richest because he, he owns everything, right? So, but instead of looking at it, oh, God owns everything, oh, everything, it's my, the land is mine, well, it really teaches you a very important staple of human condition. Nowadays, we look at, at charity as, well, you know, we almost feel like a sense of obligation to give charity and to help. But really, the human condition is, what is mine is mine. I, I, I worked very hard for this, so I, you know, don't, no one's going to tell me what to do with my property. And what the Torah is saying is, and I, I remember having this, so there's the very famous tithe, yeah, giving 10%, right, in the Torah. And there is a, even a higher level is to give a fifth of, of your income. And I, I started doing that. At, at Sometimes it, it gets very hard. Because, you know, if you make a nice chunk of money, I have to, big, <laughs> I have to give a big chunk. And it's hard. And, I, and then I, I thought, when I was thinking about, like, well, it's so hard to give 20% of your income. And then I thought, you know what the, the truth is? The truth is, instead of looking at the 20% to give away, is the fact that you can keep the 80%. That's a real way to look at it. In, in other words, like you said, it's God's money. We're not just saying, like, oh, it's God's money he gave me. What we're saying is nothing, everything, God, God owns everything. Everything is God's. There's nothing in the world that doesn't belong to God. Now, God gave you everything, not only financial, God gave you everything that you own, that you can contribute. And therefore, it's not just, oh, I'm so nice, I'm giving you some, you know, some of my money. No, no, no. And this is where the, the, the name in Hebrew, it's tzedakah. Charity means out of my, you know, voluntary, I'm so nice, such a noble act. That's what charity means. In Hebrew, in, in fact, in the Torah, it's not a noble act. Because tzedakah in Hebrew comes from the word justice. So you're doing the fair thing. In other words, you're putting the money in the right place. That's what tzedakah means. Yes, of course, we applaud you. It's great that you're giving, you know, giving tzedakah. But it, what it's saying is that everything is what God gives you. And therefore, where you put it, where you, you know, locate it, it's doing the right thing. It's not so, you know, like we were saying, but I applaud you if, if you helped someone that, that needed help. 
You say it's the right thing to do. The same thing with tzedakah. Yes, you, you, you should receive, you know, uh, recognition and everything, but tzedakah is very different than charity. It's the right thing to do. It's the justice. It's the just thing to do. It's, you're putting it in the right place. So it's a very different way of looking at, at your income and, and everything you own, really. It's really, it's a gift. Everything that I have is a gift. And therefore, I, it's only the right thing to give, you know, whatever it is, 10% of, of whatever I own to the right place. So it's a very, very different way. And honestly, it's not easy to look at it that way. Because it's very hard. You know, this is, I worked hard. So why, why, why do you say, oh, it's the right thing to do? It's a very, you know, <laughs> it's a very good point for fundraisers to say that, oh, it's God's money, you know, put the money in the right place. But it really is very, it's very game-changing in the way you look at what you own. It's very, it's very humbling in a way. Very hard also. <laughs> so, uh, right, so this is what I would, I would just explain in the text number 14. I think we're up to... Me? Yeah. Do not say, why should I deplete my funds by giving uh, of them to the poor? Understand that the money is not truly yours, but is a trust from God that must be administered in accordance with the wishes of the trust owner. God's wish is that you disperse from the trust to the poor. So this is a very different way of viewing our relationship with our possessions, and it definitely influences everything that we do with them. So this is a very nice, nice story I, I, uh, I'd like to share about Rav Mordechai Rifkin, used to raise money for yeshiva in communist Russia, so it was very difficult times. At one time, they go to this previous donor that stopped giving, and he said, he claimed that, you know, times are rough, and I, I just can't afford it, I can't, I can't help you. So he told him, I, I would like to tell you a story. It's like this fellow that uh, would go to the fair to, you know, buy his merchandise, to buy the stock for his small store that he had in his, back in his town. And on the way back, you know, in the, in the wagon with all the merchandise, and suddenly it starts raining, and, and the whole thing gets muddy, and they get stuck. So the wagon driver is like, okay, I'm so sorry, but we're going to have to get rid of something. We're going to have to get rid of, you know, your merchandise is very heavy. So the businessman says, well, why don't we, you know, take away the wheels so there's not so much weight, you know, for the wagon. He said, <laughs> he said, he said so he said, tzedakah, giving charity, is not a luxury any more than the wheels of a wagon. Tzedakah is the wheels that keep your business turning. In other words, because you're putting the money, you're showing God, I'm realizing that this is yours. I'm realizing that this is coming from you. It's a gift from you. And I'm showing you by putting it you know, in the right place, so to speak, you're compelling God you know, to continue giving you. Because you're showing him that I recognize this is from you. It's a gift. And you make of the analogy with what we were bringing up about Abraham basically giving his son to, to mm -hmm. God. I mean, this is something mm -hmm. that you are not showing necessarily to the world, that this is like your own kind of mm -hmm. reckoning. And in a way, that was Abraham's charity. Yeah. Sort of right. It was probably, yeah, that was, that's why the Torah calls it the hardest test. The giving of charity. And I heard it said that um, because it is, 
from God and he gives us all of our needs that he also will never be indebted to us. So when we give our money, especially like if I live in Oceanside, so there's a bunch of homeless, so right. I'll give. And it's like every now and again when I'm like, okay, this is a real test of my faith right now. So I, I, I mean, I've done it before where I said, it was like my last $4 and I gave the $4 and almost jokingly, I'm like, okay, God, you owe me. Um, if you wouldn't mind giving me, you know, more, he ended up giving me four hundred dollars. Right. You know, and it was just like sometimes it's a test. How much are you gonna do? That's right. Oh, I I can say so many stories like that that I I, I promised. You know, sometimes the the ten percent gets so far that I I didn't own the money yet, and I'm already giving the ten percent. Right. Mm -hmm. So one time I said, listen, I have to, there's no, uh, no two ways about it. And, um, I just gave, you know, sent the money and literally like a day later, someone sent me a bit more than what I gave. Right. And I was like, wow, like a not expected with interest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So definitely, it's definitely a, a big test of our faith. Okay. So let's, let's, um, Let's get this, bring this home. So text 15, 15A, 15B. Um, okay, I guess we can read them uh, quickly. But basically, okay, so till now we spoke about the Jewish view on charity, Jewish view on social responsibility. But of course, the purpose is not just to keep it within the Jewish faith. But of course, to inspire everyone to give. So there's no question that nowadays, you know, charity is a noble act. And definitely society and, and the government has a role to play in, you know, alleviating poverty and, and preventing people from becoming poor in the first place. And uh, but the, the truth is that it wasn't always like this. It wasn't always like this. So let's let's look at text 15a. Alright. Uh, oh, uh, in Greek culture, the well-to-do were never expected to support and help the poor. The Greek word philanthropia never had the sense of our modern philanthropy. One is philanthropos towards one's own people, parents, and other family members and guests or strangers, not towards the poor. For exhortation to give alms to the poor. One looks in vain to Greek and Roman literature. Greek moralists do not admonish people to concern themselves about the fate of the poor, except incidentally when someone has been unexpectedly hit with a great catastrophe. To be, sh to be sure, generosity or periotes was praised as a virtue, but the poor were never singled out as its object. It was always direct to humans in general. When Greek literature speaks about the joy of giving to others, it has nothing to do with altruism, but only with the desired effect, the effect of giving, namely honor, prestige, fame, and status. Honor is the driving motive behind most of Greek's beneficence, and it is for this reason that the Greek word philotimia, love of honor, also 
philodoxia to develop the meaning of generosity or beneficence, not directed towards the poor, but to fellow humans in general, especially those from whom one could reasonably expect a gift in return. It is stated in all its simplicity by Hesiod, give to him who gives, but do not give to him who does not give in return. So very basically, what we're trying to say is it, was, it wasn't always like that. And uh, generosity was not focused on the poor. And it was definitely not altruistic. It was always, you know, what can I get back? Or receiving honor, receiving respect. And, of course, many, many Jews throughout history also gave charity for, for selfish reasons and fame. Um, but the important point is that Judaism, not Jews, Judaism says that the ideal for give, to, for, to give is for the sake of giving because that's what God wants. So, um, this language is completely absent from the Greek and Roman conversations. So, um, so we learned four things. A, we must give charity to the poor. B, charity is a societal obligation, not just a personal one. So it should be managed by the communal authorities. C, we should help people provide for themselves so that they won't be poor. And four, the economy should be structured in a way that keeps people from becoming poor. And um, so they originated in the Torah. Then how did it become mainstream? Is once Christianity and Islam, you know, adopted this idea. And um, now basically helping the poor is a natural um, belief. And, and some people, even atheists, look at like these... Um, um, the, the attitudes of Greeks and Romans, and they can't even believe how is it possible that they didn't have this sense of, you know, how do you say, charitability? The sense of giving. And now there's even a sense of obligation, like I said before. Now, one of the differences between the Jewish uh, view and the Christ Christian one was the Christians were more focused on the giving to the poor, not so much on the preventing part, and not so much on the communal uh, part of it. It was more of an individual thing. So that's definitely something that, that can still be, um, you know, implemented and, 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 you know, continue on. This is where the lesson video would go. And it traces the now universal concept of structuring the economy to minimize poverty. From the mitzvah of, of, of uh, the Jubilee year through 17th century Hebrists, and all the way to Th Thomas Jefferson and the founding fathers of the United States. Very interesting. I'm going to send they you... They didn't structure the, the country to avoid poverty. They were slave owners. They were... I well... Mean, the, I, I don't think the United States in its origin was structured at all to prevent I think that poverty. to avoid poverty of certain classes. They, to avoid poverty for, for one okay, class. Okay, so I, I don't know. I didn't watch, like, the whole video. But I, I, I can send you the, on your email, send you the video and, and, you know, judge. I think it's even on YouTube. Judge for, I don't know exactly what they're saying, but it could be just to say that, that some ideas were bought, like, adopted from the Jubilee year concept. 
I think it was taken from from the jewelry concept to a uh, a. Um, I mean, philosophically, they said if you look at their writings, philosophically, it was nice, but in reality, they were slave owners and right, and, right, right. and took advantage of people and were yeah, yeah no, I know people. I'm, I'm I'm just saying I think some of his ideas were taken. From the Jubilee year, I'm not sure exactly what the okay. the point. I can. They sold it well. They just didn't live it. Okay, that that could be that could be it also. So now let's let's finish this class and say and making it practical. So, of course, I'm I'm uh, also the fact add to that that I'm Italian, so I've I've really no interest in in politics and uh, and as a rabbi even more so. Uh, so I'm not here to say, you know, is the government meant to do more to prevent poverty or to help the poor or do less? But the bottom line is that one, th one thing's for sure is we can definitely improve in our individual responsibility. Not, yes, government is very important in helping the poor people, but one thing we can definitely improve is not rely so much on the government, but meaning the government cannot replace your individual responsibility and your sense of responsibility in helping whoever you may help. And, and uh, the responsibility is not just money, but it's in any, anything that, that you can help someone, it, whether you know, it could be relationships, it could be in, in moral uh, guidance, it could be in anything, truly. And um, yeah, the government does not replace your personal responsibility, and uh, definitely, you know, we should improve and uh, try to, to connect more with, with the people on, on, in, the in the sense that, you know, social media might have dulled that in, in, in many ways, that, you know, connection between people. And therefore, we should definitely, you know, strive to be more on the, to just care more for people. And I, I, I gave an example about... Um, Definitely as a rabbi, that's my job, to care for people. And I remember this past Rosh Hashanah, I was, um, I, I went to, um, to some retirement centers to blow the shofar. And, you know, seemingly it was, I, you know, there are many reasons why you could do it. You can do it, you know, for the sense of, you know, community or for the sense just to make them feel good or make me, me feel good, but it was, it was definitely, once I realized that it came from a, a place of, I really cared for them, and I wanted them to feel that they matter, that they, it's worth my time to come and, and blow shofar for them, that was you know, better than, than, it was very important for me and for them. So I think this sense of caring, and uh, you know, you always see these videos Beautiful videos of, you know, helping the homeless, which is beautiful. But sometimes it's very easy. It's easier to help the homeless than to help the people that are close to us. To help them in whatever they need, you know. Not necessarily financial, but definitely, you know, let's, let's be more open to help whoever is closer to us. And um, on the mitzvahs part of it, definitely, you know, we, the agriculture uh, side of it is not so relevant nowadays. But that's why the rabbis instituted giving 10% to, uh, to the needy, to institutions that 
you know, teach Jewish values and ensure a Jewish future. And Maimonides, I'm not going to read this, but basically Maimonides said it's better to give a little bit many times than to give a lot in one. Because the more you give, even if it's less, the more you give, it always brings out that giving thing into you. It's like going to the gym. You don't go once a month. Don't be a weekend warrior. Right. Better to be at 10 minutes a day. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So it's better to give a little bit each day or more. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't want to you. Do you want to finish your sentence? Um, I mean, I just, I just wanted to finish. I just have one yeah. teeny weeny question, just exactly what you're saying. When you yeah. say give, does it mean monetary or can it be service to? I think I think both. I keep hearing when you give, like it looks like a physical give. But no, 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 that's I said it a couple times. Okay, so the sense of responsibility is anything that you can help someone. It could be a hug. It can be helping in relationships. Any any type of help that you f think you can, you know. House cleaning, babysitting, yeah. getting food if someone's yeah. sick, anything. Anything in the hospital. Yes, yes. Yeah. Giving a call, calling someone. Where I just called someone <laughs> the other day. Yeah. And uh, what, I, what I would like to finish with this is um, that's why the rabbi encouraged a lot of people to have pushkas. That's why I, I took them out today. Because I want to give it to you. Aw, I don't want anyone. <laughs> yeah, so it's definitely a, a nice... The rabbi encouraged to have these at your, your, in your, at your home or at work. To remember. You got one? Okay, perfect. To, to always have kind of a reminder at home, at, at work, to remind you that, you know, we're not here only for ourselves and we have to think of, you know, the, the, the needy ones. And that's why I brought, <laughs> I brought also one, $1 bills. If you realize, you ever watched, you know, the rabbit videos, that every Sunday in the later years, he would stand out, outside for, for hours and he would give a dollar to... to, to every person that, that came by. And that was the, the purpose. That I've always said that when two, two people meet, they, it's, they're supposed to benefit a third one. That's why he gave you know, people dollars. Mm. And uh, sorry, they're a little scrunched. <laughs> but it's the idea of, of to bring this, to bring this you know, to real, real, uh, like real action. So basically, <laughs> basically, it's the idea to give Give less, but give often, basically. Yeah, well, not give less, it's necessary, but just the idea. Yeah, no, it's just the idea oh, to give. Yeah, well, I am, you know, the messengers of the Rebbe. Well, we should be giving to you today for doing your talk. Don't worry, you, you, uh, it's part of the, um, the, class. It's fair to say when you give tzedakah, like when you put it, because yeah. I know before we like candles, we're supposed to There's just make them Right, right. There's a prayer? Not necessarily. Actually, oh. interestingly, I, I forgot to say that, but the rabbi also encouraged to give charity every morning before we, you know, start the day. Just to give oh. you a, a boost. I have question to ask you on that. So yeah. we automatically, there's something called the, the charity that every day, they, it's called daily giving. And I signed up online, so every day they take from me, like they, I have an account set up that they take, but I'm not conscious that it's happening. You know what I mean? Right. Like I just already took care of it. So yeah. that's just as valid as, as physically giving every day because it is valid, accept, but you know, like I don't maybe it's it. valid on the, on the giving. In other words, mm -hmm. whoever is receiving is receiving every day. So that's, that's good. But from your part, if you want to 
you know, uh, strengthen your giving, then definitely, you know, for example, I have, I had a big problem because who, 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 I never have cash. I never, I never carry cash with me. So, so at one point I was to give, I used to give quarters. So two, three in the morning and one before the after, in the afternoon. What I started doing is cash app. I would send to some people that I, I knew they needed. Um, actually just today, because I was learning this. So I gave to, um, a family member that I know that needs that we, we specifically, in, instead of giving directly, this is also an important thing, instead of giving directly to them, A, they're not going to know who give, who's giving them, they don't know it's their family, B, they're also not going to take it, and, you know, clearly they don't know, they're, they're not very good with financial matters, so therefore they're, they're not going to use it properly, so we, we created a fund, someone over there that's going to, put the money directly toward the, you know, a cleaning lady or whatever. So that's, it's also very smart to not just give, but do it, you know, the, in a way that people can actually benefit from it. Anyways, thank you so much. So mine does, yeah. like, even though I'm not cautious of it. Yeah, I said, I said, because there's a giver and then there's a receiver. No matter what, even if you don't remember, the receiver side is receiving, so that's good. That's all that matters, so, so I automatically right. did not do it. Meaning that it's, it's not all that matters, it, it's from their side, it's all that matters. From your side, if you want to strengthen your giving, then I would definitely you know, advise sometimes to give, you know, it could be cash or just to actively you know, engage your, your mind with the giving aspect. Well, to me, it's a lot of services. You know, I don't know if you guys saw the news. There was a girl um, on Friday night. Oh, my goodness. Well, Friday sounds funny. They showed it on the news. It was so sad. She needs a blood transfusion. She's